Is the devastation facing the broad spectrum of the working class connected to stories of skyrocketing profits by the ultra-rich? Is environmental activism actually becoming a deadly enterprise? What are incidents of Canada backing the overthrow of elected leaders about which most people don't hear? Is there a danger potentially even greater than that associated with 5G about the public being shielded from any knowledge? Why are the most censored stories? What are the most censored stories of the past year? This week on the Global Research News Hour, we are once again exploring the most important and underreported events of the past year and looking ahead at the stories anticipated for this brand new year with a set of guests. First up is Andy Lee Roth, Associate Director of Project Censored, about his organization's list of the top 25 most censored stories of 2022 to 2023. In our second half hour, activist and author Eve Engler joins us to talk about the most censored stories in Canada relating to Canadian foreign policy. We also hear from Ryan Christian, founder and editor of the Last American Vagabond website, about his view of the most censored story of 2023. On this week's broadcast, independent media tugging the curtain, hiding the wizard of mainstream corporate press, the most censored stories of 2023. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of January 5th, 2024. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping the world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We acknowledge that this program was produced on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The settlers from Europe displaced the indigenous people who lived here first, based in fake promises and treaties to secure access to the lands and water. Colonialism and genocide was the result. Those of us who inherit those assets need to know their origin and secure reparation and partnership between settlers and indigenous people moving forward. Now it's time for News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. I can fight the opposition till the end of my life, but it is demoralizing to be targeted from within, and the freedom movement itself is going through a time now of fracturing, with bad behavior escalating in a few quarters and with false suggestions hurled about by a few irresponsible people, including against me, and with random insults leveled, and with nasty, pointless sniping from some quarters at our tireless and often selfless efforts. If I were a member of the deep state, one recent baseless epithet, for example, I would not 
face threats every single week, I must assume. It is hard to wake up to work long hours every day motivated by love and care not only for you and your families, but also for those who are supposed to be on the right side of history with us at a time when a few of our own compatriots are now behaving in ways so far below the high calling of our cause. It is hard to face fire from two directions at once. That comes from the article, Glimpses from a Season in My Life, For Real, Naomi Wolf, by Dr. Naomi Wolf, posted January 3rd, originally published on Outspoken with Naomi Wolf. While Carrie's health is fragile, she remains firm in her incisive understanding and analysis of world events committed to national sovereignty and fundamental human rights. She constitutes a powerful voice in the understanding and analysis of U.S. hegemony and the global political economy. Her first book, published in 1970, entitled Silent Surrender, the Multinational Corporation in Canada, predicted with foresight more than half a century ago what is happening today. Quote, First published in 1970, Silent Surrender helped educate a generation of students about Canadian political economy. Kerry Polanyi Levitt details the historical background of foreign investments in Canada, their acceleration since World War II, and the nature of intrusions by multinational corporations into a sovereign state, unquote. That comes from the introduction under the headline, On the Origins and Legacies of Really Existing Capitalism, in conversation with Carrie Polanyi-Levitt, by Carrie Polanyi-Levitt and Professor Andrew M. Fisher, posted January 3rd, originally published in Wiley Online Library. Turkish Foreign Ministry spokesperson Onku Keseli said in a statement that Ankara welcomes the South African case, which says Israel has violated its obligations under the 1948 Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. Israel's murder of more than 22,000 Palestinian civilians, the majority of whom were women and children, in Gaza for nearly three months should not go unpunished in any way, Caselli said. Those responsible for this must be held accountable before international law, he continued, adding, we hope that the process will be completed as soon as possible. South Africa filed the case last month and wants an order calling on Israel to halt its military operations in the besieged enclave. That comes from the article, War on Gaza, Turkey Backs South Africa Genocide Case Against Israel at ICJ. By Ragip Soilu, posted January 3rd, originally published on Middle East Eye. Energy Monitor's parent company, Global Data, recently released a report showing that Europe's biggest lithium reserves lie in the Donbass region of Russia. The former Ukrainian Shevchenkivsky field in the Donetsk region and the Kruta-Balka block in the Zaporizhia region 
are now part of Russia. These reserves add tremendously to Russia's humongous lithium deposits, now 1.5 million metric tons, and solidify the country's top 10 position globally. If we consider other BRICS nations' reserves, including China, 2 million metric tons, EU industry is at a leverage point. What's most significant about this is that the EU and Germany in particular desperately need the rare mineral to manufacture green energy technologies such as wind turbines, electric vehicles, and a variety of electronic devices. That comes from the article, The EU is Willing to Go to War Over Lithium, by Phil Butler, posted January 3rd, originally published on New Eastern Outlook. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Andy Lee Roth is Associate Director of Project Censored, a co-editor of 14 editions of the Project Censored yearbook, including most recently State of the Free Press 2024 and a co-author of Media and Me, a guide to critical media literacy for young people. He coordinates Project Censor's Campus Affiliates Program, a news media research network of, seven hun- of several hundred students and faculty at two dozen colleges and universities across North America. He holds a PhD in sociology from the University of California, Los Angeles, and a BA in sociology and anthropology from Haverford College. Uh, Welcome to the show, Andy. It's uh, good to have you back. Michael, it's always a pleasure to join you and talk about some of the most important but underreported stories. Thank you. Yeah. Um, The cover of the magazine features a brick wall with a shuttered window in in it, but there are openings in the the shutter opening up the faces of of Elon Musk and Bill Bill Gates and then hire up a a spray paint can with a Confederate flag spraying the shutter to look like a... to like a, a U.S. flag, what you say is the the message behind the the, the behind that uh, image. I'm so glad you start with that, Michael. That's the great uh, cover art by Anson Stolen Anson Stevens Bolin, who's done uh, a number of the most recent yearbook cover art uh, for us. Uh, and if you think about the state of the free press. Uh, the imagery from Anson is pretty grim, right? Uh, there's, you know, these are these kind of window slats that are tattered and working behind them are various suspicious or, uh, uh, you know, incredible uh, individuals. Um, but one of the things that Steve Masick of North Central College and I emphasize in our introduction to this year's top 25 list, playing on that imagery of the, the slats on a window is that it's independent news media that uh, that are the light through those slats. If you think of the slats as a metaphor for censorship broadly, gatekeeping in journalism and the like, uh, a lot you know those slats can block our view, and the light coming through the slats, uh, we argue in the introduction of this year's story list, are the positive 
uh, contributions of independent journalists and independent news outlets that are uh, that are bringing to light stories we wouldn't otherwise know about so that we can be better informed uh, as citizens and more engaged as community members. Mm. There are certain sorts of themes <clears throat> that uh, recur, uh, you know, several times. Uh, I'm thinking in number 24, uh, Twitter files reveal U.S. government pressure on social media platform to suppress alternate views, alternative views. Uh, could, could you maybe just expand on that one story? Yeah, uh, just quickly, uh, this story on our list is based on original reporting by Matt Tybee, uh, and also by Keenan Malek at The Guardian um, from early in 2023 uh, on how the Twitter files reveal pressure from US government agencies on Twitter and other social media platforms to shape kind of the parameters of legitimate political discourse. Um, so Twitter has banned selected political voices, supported covert government operations, um, censored posts that would kind of uh, alter, if not explode, the myth of large-scale Russian interference in the 2016 election. And I think, to me, the main point about this story, um, it, well, there are two main points I would emphasize, kind of looking at big picture. Um, one is, this is an example of what uh, Mickey Huff, the director of Project Censored, and our colleague Avram Anderson, who's an information science librarian at Cal State uh, University Northridge, and I have written about as, um, as censorship by proxy. So in this case, it's not the government per se saying, you, you know, you can't say this, don't say that, but the government, government agencies are working with a private for-profit corporation, in this case, Twitter, the social media giant, to, to shape the parameters of legitimate discourse. And that's an indirect form of censorship. It's not kind of straightforward, traditional prior restraint. And lo and behold, the corporate news media have not done a very good job of covering this story. Um, they've the, corp the establishment news media has largely failed to explore the full implications of the Twitter files. Sometimes they've dismissed the Twitter files as sloppy, anecdotal, devoid of context, et cetera, et cetera. One thing I think that is one more thing that I would say is important about this story is, um, of course, Elon Musk is much in the news. And Elon Musk is the one who actually made the files available to a select group of reporters. Um, but as Keenan Malik pointed out in, for The Guardian, um, despite giving Tybee and a few other handpicked journalists exclusive access to the Twitter files, Musk has resisted more widespread calls to provide a full range of journalists and academic researchers access to Twitter's internal records. So I wouldn't want this story to come off as one that represents Musk as a free speech hero, the way he likes to depict himself. Um, as Malik wrote for The Guardian, Musk seems much more interested in being seen to, quote, own the libs than actually opening up Twitter's inner workings. Nevertheless, what we've seen is deeply disturbing for this kind of censorship by proxy government private corporation interface to control discourse. I think another theme has to do with the, you know, what, what the, the deprivation of the, the, the have nots and the uh, embellishment of the haves. I know that in number 18, you write debt crisis looms for world's poorest nation. Number 21, 
nearest nearly half of unhoused people are employed. Wow. But yet you have another story, number 10, and maybe you could concentrate on this one. Corporate profits hit record highs as top 0.1% earnings and Wall Street bonuses skyrocket. You just embellish yeah. that a little. Some of this we're starting to see break through into the kind of establishment press. But at the time that our uh, yearbook went to went to press, um, the, this news was underreported, except in independent outlets. Uh, 2022 was a record uh, year for corporate profits. Uh, they hit an all-time high, uh, resulting in an explosion of income for the ultra-wealthy, according to uh, reporting by Jake Johnson for Common Dreams. Uh, Johnson's reports were based on research from the Economic Policy Institute, which discovered that the earnings of the wealthiest 0.1%, so that's the one-tenth of 1% 1 in the United States, had grown by some 465% from 1979 to 2021. At, in that same period, uh, the income of the bottom 90% grew by less than 29%. Um, establishment media, as I say, have been starting to report uh, more consistently on this, but for the most part, the reporting is intermediate and it lacks the kind of uh, context that is necessary to understand these massive shifts in wealth. Um, and the other thing is, I think that uh, it's only, it, it continues to be primarily an independent media that we're seeing uh, explanations or the consideration, the analysis of data uh, that these, these super profitable corporations have been using inflation as a pretext for hiking their prices, of course, spiraling um, and widening this gap. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, I'm reminded of the, uh, I guess in the, there, there was a report, I think it was from Oxfam maybe about a year ago, <clears throat> excuse me, that uh, said that over the course of the, uh, the, the pandemic, the, uh, you know, there, there's massive devastation, but yet the top, billionaires took in about uh five trillion dollars so i mean that was uh a, ma a ma major shift so but uh, you know very much uh you know th that's something I mean, we've had all sorts of debates about the the covid situation but that's one i i've re rarely heard uh but uh getting on <clears throat> excuse me uh our, our list of uh i noticed that uh there's a lot on climate change here and yeah. uh, I mean, I don't know, six, seven, eight different stories. Um, and I'm, let, let's pick the the number nine here, a deadly decade for environmental activists. Uh, like how, how are being environmental activists uh, as far from you know, working to, to save the world, it's actually you know deadly for them. Right. So at the same time as Project Censored is uh, drawing attention to the pervasive, pernicious effects of big energy on the climate crisis, uh, the establishment press, the corporate media are downplaying the extent to which the last 10 years have been truly deadly for environmental activists, earth defenders. Um, a study by Global Witness, which keeps track of these things and has for decades found that uh, in the last 10 years, the period 2012 to 2021, Roughly one environmental activist was killed every other day, a total of 1,733 people. 
that figure, uh, Global Witness said, is almost certainly an underestimate because uh, in areas of conflict, there are restrictions on uh, what reporters can document. There's a lack of independent monitoring of attacks on defenders, and these lead to underreporting. Um, the Guardian, uh, in, in, in another of the reports that Project Censored highlights on this story, uh, reported that it's indigenous land defenders who are disproportionately affected. 39% of those killed in the period looked at by Global Witness were from indigenous communities, um, despite that group constituting collectively uh, uh, just 5% of the global population. One of the problems that the Global Witness report and the independent uh, news coverage of it that Project Censored highlights is that People who kill, injure, detain, or harass environmental activists typically do so with impunity. But there are either insufficient or non-existent investigations. There's also corruption in those investigations and intimidation uh, hampers them as well. It's pretty amazing that you can have a story like this at a time when environmental issues are so much in the news um, we dug deep to try to find any corporate coverage of Global Witnesses report, and we found two, uh, two bits. Uh, the New York Times ran one article in September of 2022 about the Global Witness report. Um, so it was covered. I guess, technically speaking, this hasn't been in a censored story. But as we often point out, the, the, as the project often points out, the the blockade of information doesn't need to be complete for it to be effective. Uh, the other uh, account we found in kind of corporate establishment press in the U.S. is was an op-ed piece in the L.A. Times in February of 2023. Otherwise, the corporate media have effectively ignored the global witness study, which uh, I'm sad to say uh, basically echoes uh a prior project censored report uh, almost 10 years ago now, the 2014 edition of the yearbook also had a story on Global Witnesses report uh, on the killing of environmental activists. And that too was significantly underreported by establishment news outlets in the US. Okay. Yeah, um, I guess I, I've got a, a, one more story that I, I'd like to bring up. And I mean, th this reflects the... Uh, the, the good news story is always a good news story in these yes. uh, in your reports. And uh, this one uh, has unions won more than 70% of their elections in 2022, 70%. And their victories are being driven by workers of color. Please tell us about our listeners about that. Yeah, it's a, it is indeed a good news story, but one that we wouldn't know much about, uh, but for the corporate media. And I'll come back and say more about that in one moment. Um, but yes, unions achieved victory in over 70% of their certification actions, elections, uh, excuse me, as reported by the conversation in January of 2023 and NPR in, in late 2022. Um, labor activity was seeing a noticeable increase. Um, but the corporate media coverage of this labor resurgence, and I think it's fair to call that, has been highly selective and in some ways misleading. The most important of those, I think I, I think anyone who's been paying attention to the news has certainly heard kind of establishment news, has certainly heard stories about union activity or union organizing activity at places like Starbucks, Amazon, maybe even Tesla. 
Um, but that co corporate coverage has tended not to pay any attention to the outsized role being played by workers of color in union growth. Um, and also to, uh, to shed any light on kind of geographical variation, most of the union activity uh, reported in this, this good news story is happening in the southeast of the country, um, of the United States. Um, corporate coverage of these recent union successes has also been, I think, marred by an inability to put uh, union activity in any kind of broader historical context. And again, that's something that we see the independent news coverage doing a much better job of. So yes, this is a good news story uh, at a time where we might need um, uh, some sparks of light uh, to give us hope. Yeah, well, I've noticed uh, getting on to the, the, the other chapters of the book, that's, that's chapter uh, two, uh, no, yeah, two. Uh, I know chapter one is the introduction that you've written with Mickey Huff, uh, which you speculate on the title that if journalism disappeared, and you talked about a, a golden era of journalism in America, a gilded age where a generation of muckraking journalists exposed political and economic corruption in ways that captivated the public's attention and spurred societal reform leading up to the First World War. Um, and then, you know, it, you know, it seemed to go down. Uh, but, but can you talk about your hopes that a new buckraking era in independent journalism could be making breakthroughs in, in spite of growing despair in, in major media. Yeah, and, and thank you, Michael, for that question. Uh, Mickey and I were drawing a little bit of inspiration from, from Carl Jensen, the project's founder, who used to like to quip that the journalism needed more muckrakers and fewer buck takers. Um, but in seriousness, a hundred years ago, this uh, the United States, the public in the U.S. was galvanized by muckraking reporting by the likes of Ida Mae Tarbell, Lincoln Stevens, Upton Sinclair. Um, and this reporting led to nationwide action, uh, a decade of reforms in things like antitrust legislation, reform of the electoral process, new banking regulations, and a host of other social programs, all of which arguably were kicked off by public outrage generated by muckraking reporting. So one of the things Mickey and I talk about is, you know, so the part of what muckraking reporting does is it harnesses a public appetite for shame and scandal, but it harnesses it to something positive, right? It's not junk food news like we critique in other parts of the yearbook. Um, it harnesses that appetite to the cause of political engagement, right? And you can look back historically, as I just rattled off, a whole, you know, a decade of reform that was arguably driven by muckraking journalism and public uh, outrage driven by that journalism. So what if instead of junk food news that titillates and distracts us today, we had a, a kind of a return, a, a new form of muckraking journalism that would galvanize the public. We might see, you know, I think, I think it could be transformative um, for the public's interest in and trust of journalism, but also more largely, uh, more broadly, um, for actual reforms 
uh, addressing the kinds of things we've been talking about today, the lack of environmental regulation, um, the widening gap between the rich and the poor, um, uh, and, uh, you know, militarism uh, in all its many manifestations. So there's definitely discontent in the United States among in the public uh, across the United States today, whether that discontent can be harnessed to something positive. Mickey and I at least put out the idea that muckraking journalism and treating journalism as a common good, as a, 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 a public option for supporting high quality independent journalism. These are all factors that we think might lead to a revitalization, not only of media in our country, but of the society as a whole. Okay, um, you just about out of maybe about a, a minute left. Is there anything else you would like to say about this magazine or about the year in, in censored news before we close? Well, um, people can get a copy for themselves uh, from the Project Censored website. And uh, and independent of that, it's so important. It's more important now uh, more than ever to support independent news outlets like Global Research Radio, um, local news, and to look to meaningful, valid alternatives to the narrow range of of uh, news and information provided to us otherwise by the corporate outlets. Okay, thanks a lot, Andy, and uh, you know, have a happy new year, and uh, you know, keep keep up the mucking away. <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much, Michael. Always a pleasure to be in conversation with you. Andy Lee Roth is associate editor, uh, associate director of Project Censored, and he, to take in the list of censored stories, you can visit projectcensored.org, and you can order a copy of Censored State of the Press at censoredpress.org. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. So now Eve Engler is joining us. He's a prominent critic of a Canadian foreign policy and an author of over a, of a dozen books on the subject of foreign policy. And there's a 13th coming out in 2024. And he also hosts a regular meeting uh, summing up the Canadian Foreign Policy News Hour, uh, where he reviews the major stories on a weekly basis that we're not hearing about in mainstream news on a regular basis. So we thought we'd have him give him a chance to spotlight a few stories that get particular merit for news that, that people should know about but are not hearing anything about from a Canadian perspective. Eve, it's good to have you with us. Thanks for, thanks for having me. So what are some of your picks or your thoughts about uh, Canada's most censored stories and, and foreign policy in 2023? Well, in terms of a, a, a you call maybe a censored in the genuine sense of that, of just not being uh, covered, uh, the kind of aftermath uh, or the consolidation of the coup against um uh, Pedro Castillo, uh, left-wing uh, president in uh, Peru, um, and Canada played a really important role in um, in uh, backing uh, Dina Boluarte, who uh, took over used the usurper um, uh, leader in Peru. The coup was what actually happened at the end of uh, 2022, uh, but in the sort of two months after uh, Canadian uh, Canada's ambassador. Uh, met with like 
eight, six or eight different uh, ministers in the coup government in a short period, like a six week, two month period. Uh, uh, Melanie Jolie, foreign minister, uh, had calls. Um, so they really work when the when the coup government was facing mass protests uh, in late 2022 and early 2023, uh, which they killed. It should be pointed out that the security forces killed more than 50 people, mostly indigenous uh, protesters. The uh, Trudeau government really worked uh, pretty aggressively at a diplomatic level to consolidate uh, the coup government, and that that's been successful. Um, so Boluarte is still uh, uh, in power. Um, there's still protests. The one year anniversary of the coup just just passed a couple of days ago, and there was um, um, another round of protests against uh, against the coup. Uh, so I'd say that's one story, and and, and that's um, you mentioned. I have a book coming out in the, in early 2024. And it's called uh, uh, Canada's Long Fight Against Democracy. Uh, and it, it goes into the history of uh, Canada backing the overthrow of governments, more than 20 of them, over the past um, uh, 70 years. Uh, so what the Trudeau government's done with um, with uh, in Peru is, uh, you know, it's not it's not one of the most aggressive uh, Canadian involvements in the ouster of an elected uh, president. Uh, but it's it's um, it's a bit more than just sort of passive uh, uh, support. It's a it's you know sort of a, a modestly engaged uh, uh, role in uh, in backing the the ouster of elected uh, elected leader, um, and that fits within a within a long Canadian history of uh, of doing that. And I would say that that <laughs> that that piece of information beyond the specific Peru detail. Uh, that uh, the fact that Canada has a long history of of backing uh, the ouster of elected uh, leaders is um, that, of course, is a highly, highly censored um, uh, uh, detail of of Canadian foreign policy history. Mm. Interesting. Okay. Um, uh, I'm now wondering uh, if you have any thoughts about how events are shaping up in 2023 and and what stories you're looking forward to hearing about in 2024? I mean, how, how are things looking from your perspective? Well, well, I think that the, obviously the two uh, big stories of 2023 in Canadian foreign policy are uh, the NATO proxy war, uh, and um, and obviously the last um, uh, since you know early October the uh, Israel's uh, genocidal siege and violence in, in Gaza. Uh, and um, so the NATO proxy war, I think that in essence, what happened in 2023 in the NATO proxy war is, is that um, the hype of um, of uh, Ukraine defeating uh, Russia uh, has has been shown that that's um, uh, not 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 holding, uh, despite this incredible amounts of weapons and financial assistance that um Canada, NATO countries have have poured in uh, uh, for this for this fight. Uh, that's not succeeded, and I, I I've said this many times. I, I you know I disagree with what Russia's done. I think Russia's invasion was violation of international law, uh, but I also believe it was definitively provoked by Canada, the U.S., and and some of the other NATO NATO countries. Um, and um, and basically what this has turned into being, uh, I think, pretty clearly at this point is that uh, it's a it's a fight to last Ukrainian. And uh, we are we 
pushed uh, uh, Ukraine. Um, we backed the forces within the far right forces within Ukraine uh, that uh, wanted to get into conflict with uh, with the neighboring um, uh, country. And we did that for our own geostrategic reasons, not because we care about Ukrainian sovereignty or we can't we care about democracy. And um, 2024, I think, is going to be uh, pretty clearly a, um, um, a horrible year for uh, for Ukraine, because uh, obviously last uh, nearly two years of, of uh, death and destruction has been has been uh, terrible. Uh, but now it's become, I think, abundantly clear that all this was for uh, was for naught, and Ukraine's going to end up losing uh, quite a bit of its territory. Um, obviously, uh, huge numbers of people have been killed, and um, and um, you know the end result is is this all could have been avoided. And um, so I think that's what's going to play out in 2024, and we're going to see lots of uh, freakouts from. Uh, the militarists within uh, within Canada and the sort of pro NATO people about well we can't we can't lose the battle for democracy and this and that um, uh, but the reality is going to is going to set in and it's a it's a it's a grim reality unfortunately for for Ukrainians principally but um, now with regards to uh, the other I think really major uh, issue of the particularly the latter, latter part of 2023, which is the there's just the absolute horrors that Israel's committing in Gaza, uh, that is uh, likely to uh, continue on in, uh, in uh, the start of the year. Um, and, um, and what we're seeing, and possibly escalating, uh, what we're seeing, of course, with um, the recent development of Canada joining this this U.S. initiative uh, to um, uh, uh, to respond uh, to the Houthis' uh, solidarity uh, with the Palestinians, uh, which is that the Houthis have been uh, attacking um, uh, ships that are uh, owned by Israeli companies or or sending goods to Israel um, as part of uh, their opposition to uh, Israel's um, you know wanton slaughter in in Gaza. Uh, Canada announcing that it's going to join this U.S.-led coalition to uh, to respond to that um, is obviously a way to support Israel in its in its um, you know genocide, uh, but also it has the potential to potential uh, to escalate uh, this whole uh, this whole conflict. When in fact, what should be pushed for is Canada should be doing everything it can to uh, uh, force Israel uh, to stand down and to uh, adopt a ceasefire and to uh, to withdraw from Gaza. Um, as part of of um, a, um, a modicum of justice to Palestinians, uh, whether that's you know to uh, two state solution or whether that's um, by uh, granting uh, Palestinians equal equal rights to uh, uh, to Israeli Jews, that's that's a whole other bigger question. Uh, but at, at minimum, a modicum modicum of justice would be to uh, end the end the slaughter in Gaza. And um, and uh, you know push towards some sort of um, um, negotiated solution to this this you know more than seventy five year uh, 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 conflict that's based on um, uh, European uh, settler colonial uh, uh, movement, um, and so um, that's an issue that has galvanized uh, the biggest uh, uh, international solidarity and anti war uh, protests 
I've seen um, in, in, in my lifetime, really. I mean, the, the before the 2003 U.S. invasion of Iraq, the demonstrations here in Montreal were, were, were bigger than the biggest demonstrations on, on Palestine. But it's now been going on for, we've had 11 uh, weeks in a row of mass protests, so we, weekends of mass protests in Montreal, uh, similar stuff elsewhere in the country. Uh, the level of sustained activism uh, uh, for you know, going towards three months now uh, is unprecedented. I've never seen it. I probably, there's nothing uh, since um, the uh, uh, U.S. Uh, war in, the, in Vietnam in uh, the late 60s and early 70s, which Canada, despite the, the, the mythology, Canada actually supported the U.S. war. Um, and there were, you know, major protests for, for many, many years in Canada uh, to build opposition to, to Canada's role in the, in the U.S. war in Vietnam. Um, so the protests we're seeing recently, I think there are the most sustained anti-war uh, internationalist uh, protests uh, in the past uh, half century. Um, and uh, and they've, they've, they've had some effect on, uh, on the Trudeau government's uh, uh, policy. They, they prompted the Trudeau government to, at minimum, vote for this U.N. Uh, ceasefire resolution. Um, but that's, that's an issue that's going to almost certainly uh, significantly shape uh, um, Canadian foreign policy in, in, in 2024, if not at a minimum at the start of the year, uh, probably throughout the whole year, because the the wherever um, things end with um, with Israel's killing in, in in Gaza, the the question of Palestinian rights is going to be back onto the uh, international uh, uh, agenda. Yeah, well, it certainly sounds like an, an optimistic tone as we we enter we we exit the year and enter twenty twenty four. I mean, in terms of you know how are the people and all that. But uh, uh, you know, thank you for all your thoughts on this, Eve. It's always a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks, Robbie. Eve Engler is a prominent activist in Canada and author of several books on Canadian foreign policy. He also hosts the weekly Canadian Foreign Policy News Hour every Monday. Go to his site, yvesenglercom for more details. The Last American Vagabond has been thorough exploring the COVID-19 situation, the Israel-Gaza conflict, surveillance technology, and more. And Ryan Christian is the founder and editor of The Last American Vagabond, an independent media critic and recipient of the Serena Shim Award for Uncompromising Integrity in Journalism. He regularly posts the Daily Wrap-Up, where he analyzes breaking topics in the public interest and explores angles that are not explored in the mainstream media. And interestingly, he does not tell listeners what to believe. He presents the data and perspectives he's come across and tells listeners to come to their own conclusions. So I was interested in exploring the topics of 2023, the 2023 year with him to, to see what topic or topics uh, were unique enough to be brought to the attention of listeners everywhere. Uh, Ryan is with me now. Uh, a pleasure having you uh, on with us again on the Global Research News Hour. Welcome. Hey, my pleasure, brother. Nice to see you again. How are you? I'm pretty good. <laughs> so there's been a lot of stories that uh, one might even say a, a poly crisis uh, we hmm. perceive as, as threatening the world. 
And uh, could you tell our listeners what stood out for you as the major story that, that got little, if any, attention in the legacy press? Climate change. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, but you know, there, there, there really are a, a, a lot of stories. Like we were talking about before we got started, like just trying to think about the many different stories that didn't get any attention as, and what we said is it's, it's, it's always difficult to pull yourself out of the current focus, you know, but the, one of the ones that immediately stands out to me, and this is something that I was actually just talking about with David Knight and uh, that Derek has been doing just an amazing amount of work on long before it started happening for the last American Vagabond. So Derek Rose, there's a lot of work for this. And this is in regard to what we've termed the fluoride trial. And this, it's just a really important conversation that's getting, I mean, near zero coverage, even by the independent media. And this is a, an ongoing lawsuit that is waged basically against the U S government and, and the national national toxicology program. And th this is being driven predominantly by a group called the fluoride action network. Now, what it ultimately breaks down to is they have the national national toxicology report that proves because the report has already been leaked years ago that fluoride is dangerous, neurotoxic, lowers the IQ of children, and has many deleterious effects. Now, this has been ongoing for years. The, the whole push to get this removed from a water source has been going on a lot longer than that. But the story is that since this has been brought to an actual report that's been you know waged against, like basically trying to forced them to take it out of the water system, that process has taken about four plus years. And every time it comes to the point where they're like, our report is done, the evidence is clear, they present it, and there's some justification. Well, we want to have the CDC look over it one more time. We want to have the, and it just, and every time the judge goes, okay, and it kicks it down the road. Now we're at a point now where the last time this happened, and this is after the report already got leaked, which even then nobody covered it, despite the fact that the report was very clear. And this is a US government report showing it that this is dangerous. Let Rachel Levine, of all people, stepped in and said, no, pause that. It's just going to sit there until further notice. That's where it got left. Mm -hmm. And of course, that was the kind of justification we got during the COVID mania, right? Where, you know, well, we don't know. So much is going on. We'll just have to wait and come back to it. But now, and, and by the way, that whole period was, most of it was being done via Zoom because of the COVID illusion. Mm -hmm. So now Judge Chen, who is the who's the judge overseeing all this, basically said, okay, we're rescheduling the final date and it's going to be in person, which we're going to be flying Derek out to cover uh, to basically see this to its culmination. And what we expect, unless there's some ridiculous, another another ridiculous step, which then we're going to have to call it out even more, is that this will be the culmination of this long process that essentially reveals publicly through the government that fluoride is dangerous, that it's always been dangerous, and that they've always known that it's dangerous. That's a big deal, right? And I mean, and it gets it's much deeper than just that it doesn't do what they say it does or that it affects your children's IQ. There's a lot of deeper problems along with this. And the joke about it always is, and this is a fact, that this is a substance that is a byproduct. It is an industri industrial byproduct. And the only reason it's in your water is because they argue that it helps your teeth, which if you actually believe the government's going to spend money to keep your teeth white when they barely will do things that will keep you alive. I mean, it's, it's an absurd reality. And the opposite is true. It creates dental fluorosis. It's not safe for you. But the point is that if they weren't doing that, these companies that are producing this byproduct would have to pay for it to be removed. Instead, they're charging you to put it in your water and it's hurting your children and it's hurting you. So we really hope this comes to a culmination in the next. It starts, I think, the end of this month and Derek will be covering that. So tune in to T-Lab for that. But think about how big of a story that is and nobody's covering it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not just that it's harmful and they're not talking about it. There are these deeper aspects to it that it's, as you say, an industrial uh, product of this sort of thing. I mean, 
I don't know. I mean, just maybe as an aside, can you maybe imagine just how far deep it could go? I mean, is it because uh, I mean, there's all sorts of things. They say the same thing about the the 5G situation, or where you know all these high frequency radio waves. I mean, so many scientists are saying it's it's harmful, but it's that that too is not the same. Uh, for I mean, is that in the same arena, or are are th are there different uh, levels of uh, or is it a totally different expanse? I mean, can you give any, any well, insight? In the sense that it's dangerous and that they don't care that it's dangerous and that they're pushing it forward regardless, even even admitting that there is basically no independent studies around whether or not it's dangerous or, yeah. rather, or rather that they've done or rather – I take that back. There are independent studies that have proven it's dangerous, but they have done none of their own to prove whether it's not, and yet they're still rolling it out. Wow. And so in that sense, it's the same concept. I mean 5G is something that's – I mean as far as I'm concerned, it's already done. Let's not forget that Donald Trump is the one that that executed a bill under the cover of COVID-19. I made a big point about this, and that's one that's the video that got me censored off of YouTube officially. And because it, it my point was not even claiming they were connected, and despite the fact that there is an interesting overlap, I can't say I can prove that they're necessarily connected, but the symptoms of both are alarmingly similar. And there was a peer-reviewed study that made that point. But just the fact that that study that he rolled out the 5G infrastructure while we were all distracted elsewhere, none of his followers ever talk about that, despite most of them attacking the concept of 5G, rightly so. But so that that's an alarming reality. And so it's already rolled out. It's already, I believe, beginning to be executed. I don't think this is going to be fully visualized or rather represented like it's there, but I don't think it's being used until that. I guess agenda needs to be pushed. Like, so the digital ID, the CBDCs, that's all going to, that they need at really more so the deeper steps around the internet of nano things, the internet of bodies. For those that don't even know those terms, those are direct terms of the World Economic Forum. That's their open discussions. They tell us right now we're in the internet of things, which just means that your, your things are connected via Wi-Fi and internet and so on, which their next steps are the internet of bodies and the internet of nano things, which are sort of the same overlap, which means that your body can be connected via device, but the nanotechnology can be anywhere and connected to the internet. And so all these things need this kind of next level infrastructure. So it's just a matter of time. And so it's happening. We just need to care about it enough to stand up and say something about it. Okay. So lo looking ahead, um, we, we have, you know, uh, this development, but we have digital currency, uh, possible cyber attacks, and maybe a war with China, a new pandemic, perhaps. What do you think is, is the story to watch for in 2024? I mean, what 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 are you focused on, shall we say? I think where this goes is the concerning step for me, where the neck the the I guess the thing I always discuss is how they've had a long-term discussion. They've been a lot of think tanks and plans and outlines about what they the they being whatever you know power structure we're discussing i always say they being the hierarchy enslaving you as an acronym but the, the, these entities basically discussing you know what they visualize as the 50 year 100 year future kind of concept long time ago and you know going back to the beginnings of technocracy and so my point is where we are now is and and, and maybe even just before covid one of the moments where they realized that the technology had caught up their technological capability had has caught up with what they visualized happening if that makes sense. So nanotechnology, smart dust, these kind of things, mRNA platforms, they weren't able to truly do these things. We know that during the past examples, they failed. And quite frankly, they failed this time too. But the question is whether that was what they were trying to do or not. But the next step is what I'm concerned about, where this already goes. And frankly, whether or not it's already happened, things like smart dust, self-spreading vaccines, 
nanotechnology that is deployed in ways that are used as dual purpose. You know, what they already discussed from MIT, a uh, an aerosolized mRNA injection, or rather wrong term. So I just say that because I don't think this is a vaccine. But in that sense, a, you know, being inoculated via aerosolized mRNA nanoparticles. You know, so that is exactly what we're talking about. <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> and so that came from MIT, and I think an overlap with Harvard. I think there was a part, there was a point about the the nanoparticle side of it and the aerosolization. I think they came from two different, but they're, it's all the same path. And this goes long back. This goes back to things that that um, um, Ralph Barrick at Chapel Hill, North Carolina, North uh, Chapel Hill, he was doing this in the nineties with basically working on a a myocarditis inducing coronavirus. This is all. This is under his own curriculum in the '90s. So think about how crazy that is. First of all, yeah, creating coronavirus that causes myocarditis. I mean, what are we at the very least? What are they telling us is happening? Or interestingly enough, they're not saying that. They're saying that it's COVID causing it. But what do we see, right? Mm. But then on top of that, they work to then aerosolize that in the caves of China with bats. You know, so it's like there's all these different overlaps, and I know there's rightly so a lot of very clear skepticism and pushback on you know whether there's a virus or whether or not that's real, and we should ask these questions. But I think what's interesting is that at the very least you can see that they were on a path to create the things that we're currently dealing with, but already back then driving in the direction that they're claiming is the next step right now: self-amplifying vaccines, self-spreading vaccines. This stuff terrifies me. Yeah, well, it's interesting you say that because I mean. You know, myocarditis. I mean, even if you believe that this thing was, uh, you know, was a bad vaccine and it was having de negative side effects, the fact that it had myocarditis and, well, wait a second, this they actually have something where you're, you know, deliberately producing myocarditis. That that's, I mean, even for people who are are already on the uh, the vaccine business, that this is kind of scary. I think you know? well, it's impossible to deny. Right? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not going to say that I know for sure that that is what we're seeing today, but mm -hmm. just think about how alarming that is. Like, and, and what logical argument could you make for why that is in anybody's benefit other than a military who would yeah. like to use that? Because the argument is always that, well, we're making this so we can find a solution to it. I guess for the one in a billion chance that somebody just happens to make the exact thing you're making. And th this this gets into their conversation about variants and so on, right? So you're pretending that you're going to use gain of function to make this thing more dangerous so you can make a vaccine for it and then hold that for the random chance that some other group in a cave, as they put it, is somewhere else making a the very same variant and that they're going to release that. And you go, oh, but guess what? We have a vaccine. That's ridiculous. That's mathematically near impossible, right? So they're making weapons. That's what they're doing. And then maybe making vaccines for it so they have an antidote for what they're doing. But I don't even think that comes into play, quite frankly. I think these are weapons. Wow. That's that's incredible stuff. Uh, okay, Ryan, I mean, I, I guess we're, we're just about out of time. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we we, we close? Well, yeah, just on that last point in general, you know, like what, what I'm talking about, to be clear, are is, is the technology they're working on. Now, I, whether that is, in fact, what's being delivered as a vaccine, as they call it to people, you know, that's for you guys to decide out there. But to be clear, when I say it's what the weapons, it's not up for debate. Dual technology is a weapon system. And it's the same with anything else they talk about. The, the point they make about the mRNA uh, aerosolization product that I think it was MIT that discussed that they made this an, an aerosolized MRA delivering system that when you when you get into it, it's it's very clear that they say, well, we use this. And we, we did two different studies. The one first was about healing. Uh, I think it was a sickle cell problem or a, a, a disease. The other one was that it created cell death. And so I simply said, it's, there it is right there. Right. You, it, 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 it's, it's a middle of the ground. The mRNA is in the middle until they program it to either 
kill, or to heal, or probably in a number of other things. So that is what dual purpose technology looks like. Now you can pretend that they're not the kind of people that would do that, or maybe that they wouldn't do it to you. But that's not a really safe bet, in my opinion, especially since if that's really what you're standing on, what's going to stop some other group from taking this and using it? And, you know, it really becomes a, 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 a this is why gain of function itself has been pushed back on by pretty much everybody. It is not in your interest. It is in the interest of war. So let's let's be smart about this. OK, uh, thank you so much for appearing on the show, Ryan. It's uh, I really appreciate having you on and uh, my pleasure. So our, our listeners can uh, check you out as well. Thank you so much. Thank you, brother. Have a good one. My guest has been Ryan Christian, founder and editor of The Last American Vagabond. You can hear Ryan's regular reports online at thelastamericanvagabond.com. As we end the most censored 2023 episode of the show, I would like to devote a couple of minutes to a revered journalist and filmmaker and fervent critic of American and British foreign policy. His name was John Pilger. He died on December 30th, 2023, of pulmonary fibrosis at the age of 84. John Pilger was Australian by birth. He first gained international recognition working as the chief foreign correspondent for the Daily Mirror covering foreign wars, including the Vietnam War. He's also reported on Palestine and Cambodia. He uncovered a massacre in Beast Timor and the general's use of torture in Burma. He went undercover to interview Czech dissidents for the film Apartheid Did Not Die in 1998. Pilger interviewed Nelson Mandela and brought up the new economic apartheid that continued to keep many black people in poverty. In Britain, his four-year investigation on behalf of a group of children damaged at birth by the drug thalidomide and left out of the settlement with the drugs company resulted in a special settlement. His dozens of documentary films and articles were hard-hitting. He did not shy away from controversy, and he continued to report on the treatment of Indigenous Australians for more than 40 years. In recent years, he's been a fierce advocate for Julian Assange and stood his ground defending him while he's been dragged through the mud of the ferocious legal system punishing his fellow Australian for practicing journalism. Mr. Pilger won 22 awards for his work in journalism and filmmaking, and he never shied away from topics that would put his life in peril, nor outrage entrenched interests made uncomfortable by his views. John Pilger, a giant in journalism, has passed away. May he rest in peace. Please tune in next week where we will explore some recent developments in the Israel-Gaza war. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojikri, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The show airs on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been your host, Michael Welch. Thanks once again for joining us.